Um, so if you'll turn in your Bibles, if you don't have one with you, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and we're going to be on page 899 this morning. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, reading verses 12 through 19, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So again, this is John 12, 12. The next day, it's a Sunday, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness to talk about it. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign, raising Lazarus. So, the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we are making our way through meditating on the Gospel of John together uh, this whole year. And for the last seven weeks, we've been in the first part of our study in John, which is Signs of Life. In the book of Signs, Jesus, of course, performed countless miracles and signs, but John has carefully chosen, carefully curated seven miracles, seven signs um, to help us, to move us really as readers to believing and experiencing the abundant life, the eternal life that Jesus alone can give. So we've seen Jesus turn water into wine, his first miracle. Uh, We've seen him heal a dying boy, an official son, from 20 miles away just with a word, go, your son lives. He told a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man did. Uh, We've seen him feed a crowd of thousands with next to nothing. We saw him walk on water. We saw him give sight to a blind man, a man born blind, an unheard of thing, and then do something even more unheard of, just raise his friend Lazarus from the dead when he was in there four days, starting to stink already, we're told. So each of these signs has revealed Jesus' identity for those with eyes to see, but with the climactic seventh sign, raising Jesus or Lazarus from the dead, Um, Jesus' jealous enemies, the Pharisees, they decide, 
we've seen enough. We've seen enough. This guy has to go. So the murder plot thickens, okay, in this story. And so on Easter next week, of course, uh, Heath will be examining John's account of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And uh, it's, that's, in effect, the eighth sign, okay? So it's the sign to which all seven signs point. It's the miracle through which everything else Jesus said and did must be understood. As Palm Sunday, our story today, makes clear, we just read, the disciples did not understand. They did not understand the, the significance of Palm Sunday until after Jesus was glorified. That is, until after he was crucified and raised from the dead and ascends to the Father to send the Holy Spirit to his people. Um, it wasn't until after that, with the Holy Spirit's help, that they would begin to understand what was going on on that Sunday. Because most of the time they were scratching their heads, you know. It's just like, what? Why is he, does anyone know why he's on a donkey? What's the deal with that, right? They were confused, just like we often are. So verse 12 and 13. This week is Palm Sunday, so we're studying John's story of the triumphal entry. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, after which he will be crucified outside the gates of the city. And Palm Sunday is uh, not a sign, uh, but it's within the drama of, of the signs. Uh, because again, the signs reveal Jesus' divine identity. Right? He, he is not just a, a king, he is God-made flesh. He's the creator of the cosmos. He's the giver of life. But as we'll see, to the, the teeming masses that flock to Jesus in adoration outside the gates of the capital, Jesus is just like the next big thing. He's, he's nothing more than a political tool, another messianic mascot that will soon become a scapegoat. So the hype train will go on. So the triumphal entry is actually one of the few moments in Jesus' life that makes it into all four Gospels, all four accounts of Jesus' life. We hear about it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's only one miracle that's in all four. Anyone know what it is besides Heath? <laughs> Feeding of the 5,000. Yes, that's the only one that's in all five. And we'll come back to that story because... It's an extremely important and related story that gives context for Palm Sunday. So these moments were, were crucial moments that really loomed large in the memory of Jesus' disciples. Like his baptism in the Jordan River or like his crucifixion on Calvary, uh, these are moments that you need to understand, to fully understand, to get the full picture of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And John's version of Palm Sunday, however, is a little different than the others. It's notably shorter, which makes the details that he adds even more important. He adds these little details that sort of ratchet up the political overtones of the story and ratchet up the political tension that's there in the story. So, for example, only John notes that the crowds call Jesus explicitly the king of Israel. So in case we miss the significance of them crying out, as we just sang, Hosanna, from Psalm 118, 
which literally means give salvation now. That's what Hosanna means. Give salvation now. John includes their naming him as their king, the king of Israel. So they're crying out for their king to save them. From what? From Roman occupation. From Caesar. And only John includes that they were waving palm branches. So what's the deal with the palms? So palms, which is kind of funny as we just had our kids waving them, but palms were an overtly nationalistic, even militaristic symbol in Israel. So over a century before Palm Sunday, uh, several things happened, but one, one thing was Simon the Maccabee, he drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem, and he was greeted with the waving of palm branches upon his return into the city. And so this was a culturally understood symbol. Uh, and then it, even a few decades after Jesus' ministry, during the Jewish wars against Rome, the Jewish insurgents stamped palm trees on their coinage uh, as a symbol. And then when the Romans completely crushed uh, the Jews, they stamped palm trees on their coins to commemorate their victory over uh, the Jews. And so suffice it to say, John is making it unmistakably clear the kind of atmosphere that we have here. Unmistakably clear that this crowd was ready for violent insurrection against Rome. Uh, at a word from Jesus, D.A. Carson in his renowned commentary on John, he said, all Jesus would have had to have done is get up on a war horse, as Isaiah prophesied, and the crowd would have been whipped into an insurrectionist frenzy against Roman occupation. So that was the atmosphere. It did not, by the way, look like this. This was not the atmosphere. This is not insurrection energy. This is brunch energy, okay? This is like... You know, it's like, I'm gonna, maybe I'll go flip some tables and afterward we can have some coffee in the lobby. I'll be signing autographs if anyone wants to join me. This is like a parade, kind of, you know. Jesus smiling, high-fiving kids. Not the energy, okay? This does not look like a powder keg ready to blow. So let's get that image out of our minds. Move on to the next slide. Uh, John also points out that the crowd... Uh, was not just those who had been following Jesus for a long time, not just the crowds from Galilee and the crowd uh, from Bethany that had seen Lazarus raised from the dead and could not shut up about it. Uh, there was an even greater crowd that came out from the city by the thousands in curiosity because they had been told the story and they had heard that Jesus was coming to the city. And high estimates from this time for just how many pilgrims would travel from around the world to come to the city on Passover was around 2.7 million people. So you can imagine this was a massive crowd that is coming out in curiosity to see Jesus. And at a word from him, this powder keg could blow. And so this is Jesus' moment, right? The masses are on his side. What is he going to do? Well, John tells us what he does. He finds like a, a young little donkey and he sits on it. <laughs> he sits on a donkey. No war horse, no chariot, no motorcade with tinted, you know, bulletproof windows. 
a donkey. You might remember in the other Gospels, there's kind of a big to-do about uh, Jesus sending the disciples to ascertain said donkey. But in John, there's none of that. John um, just presents this moment as Jesus' response to the hysteria around him. He sits on a donkey. They're, they're expecting a Ferrari. Jesus sits on a jalopy, right? They're expecting a war horse. He finds a donkey, and he sits down on it. It's, in a sense, like a, a move that kind of de-escalates the situation, right? It's a, it's a peace sign, and there's a claim being made that no one understands at the time. So, before we turn back to that prophecy in Zechariah, let's move back in the story of John for a moment here to John chapter 6 for a very similar moment, um, a related story. This is the feeding of the 5,000. So in John 6, Jesus is out in the wilderness in the place where messianic insurrectionist movements tended to foment, and he's surrounded by 5,000 men. There's a lot more people than that, but he says 5,000 men. Where do you, where do you find 5,000 men gathered together? It's an army, right? Or maybe a video game conference, but that's a very different scene, okay? They didn't have those yet, okay? 5,000 men, an army, and Jesus comes up with enough food to feed an army and their families from five pitiful barley loaves and two pickled fish. It's the food of, of the peasants. It's the food of the poor. Now, but think about this. Think about an army led by a king who can miraculously multiply rations and can even raise the dead. This is going to be quite a formidable army, invincible even. And so it makes sense that the people, even at this point in the story, out in the wilderness, have seen enough to make Jesus king. But what does Jesus do with his big opportunity? Perceiving, this verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make Jesus king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He withdraws. He disappears to be with his father in his big moment. And you see the similarities in the story? On Palm Sunday, the crowds again. It's our king, the king of Israel. They're ready to make him king. And Jesus can't disappear this time. He has work to do, so he does the next best thing. He sits down in humility on a little donkey. John says the disciples, they did not understand at the time. Perhaps their bets were on the war horse, not the donkey, right? a better bet usually but afterwards they remembered their bibles and john quotes the prophet zechariah which we read in our call to worship chapter 9 so we'll read uh, read a little more of it verses 9 to 12 so this is the lord god speaking and god says to his people rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout aloud o daughter of jerusalem so jerusalem is being personified Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This is God. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's Israel, and the war horse yeah, from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he, the king, that is, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from where? From sea to sea, from the river 
to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, that's Jerusalem, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So Zechariah's prophecy to Jerusalem is that when their long-awaited king arrives on Palm Sunday, which maybe we should change it to Donkey Sunday, okay? That might be a better name. I don't have the authority to make that change, okay? Um, Kids dressed as donkeys, that'd be cool. Uh, It will be in humility when he returns, and he will speak peace, and his followers will lay down their weapons of war, their swords, their chariots, their battle bows, their war horses. And his peaceful rule will extend beyond Israel out to the nations. And the only blood spilled will be part of God's new covenant relationship with them that sets their prisoners somehow free. In other words, the king will come to restore the kingdom. But in a surprising way, at least at first, His kingdom, Jesus says in chapter 19, is not of this world. Otherwise, Jesus says they would have been fighting. No wonder it wasn't until after, right? Until after Jesus shed his blood on the cross and rose from the grave that the disciples began to put the pieces together and began to understand. Now, the careful reader might notice the odd fact that John replaces a line of the prophecy here. He replaces the first line, rejoice greatly, with fear not. Now there are a few theories as to why he he does this. I think the most compelling one is that he is alluding to a very similar prophecy. Another prophet that I'm sure you read daily, uh, the prophet Zephaniah. Since I don't know if you have that one memorized yet, we'll have it up here on the screen for you. Okay, this is Zephaniah chapter 3. It's a wonderful text. Notice how similar the beginning is. Sing aloud, God says through Zephaniah, O daughter of, Jer- of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerus- Jerusalem. The Lord, verse 15, has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, hmm? the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. How good is that? See it? The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Fear not, the Lord your God is in your midst. This is not merely a messianic mascot, a political messiah. The king is God himself in your midst. And his ways are not our ways. I love this line, he will quiet you by his love. Jesus quiets political hysteria. Jesus quiets the frenzied crowd. Jesus quiets the anxious and fearful heart. He's not in the storm, right? He's not in the mob. And we are loud 
Jesus speaks quietly. Verses 14 and 15. I, I think John purposefully remixed a line of biblical prophecy here to draw our attention to those two words that are everywhere in Scripture. Fear not. Fear not. Behold him there, seated on a donkey. Fear not. Behold him there, hanging on a cross. Fear not. The Lord God is in your midst. He is present. Let him quiet you with his love. John says that perfect love casts out fear. So we'll come back to. See, political hysteria, which we know a thing or two about, then and now, is nothing more than fear crowding out our sense of the presence of God who speaks peace to us and to our enemies. Jesus came, Ephesians and Acts says, to preach peace to those who were far and those who were near. Hysteria is fear crowding out our sense of the presence of God who speaks peace to us and to our enemies. Right? Hysteria says, maybe God isn't really in charge, so I need to take charge. You know, I, I gotta show this person, or I gotta show these people. And in that moment, Jesus sits down. In that moment, Jesus withdraws. He says, no, I'll wait. I'll wait. I'm right here. When the hysterics are over, when you're done, let me know and we'll talk. John's story of Palm Sunday is about Christ's relationship to power grabs and his people's persistent misunderstanding, which leads us to fear and all of its rotten fruit. And so John breaks the people into three groups. And let's look at each one, see if we might find ourselves somewhere in the story. Uh, first, we have the disciples, verse 16. And John says, again, the disciples did not understand at first, but later they did. This happens a lot of times in John. You know, for example, early on, Jesus says to the temple authorities, he's like, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they're like, no, you won't do that. <laughs> it's not possible. And then after he's raised from the dead, the disciples are like, oh, he was talking about his body. Like, that's the new temple. And then in chapter 13, Jesus is washing uh, Peter's feet, his disciple. And Peter's like, no way. You know, and Jesus is like, trust me, you don't understand now, but later you will understand. And in chapter 16, Jesus is teaching his disciples the apprenticeship master class. And, and he says, when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit will help you understand and lead you into all truth. So what did they understand? What did they come to understand about Palm Sunday? Well, they understood that by sitting on a donkey, Jesus was indicating that he did not come to lead the Jews in insurrection against their Gentile oppressors. Jesus came to give his life that he might reconcile both Jews and Gentiles to God and thus to one another. The most radical thing that has ever happened in human history, Jews and Gentiles becoming one family in Christ. As Paul puts it dramatically in Ephesians 2, Jesus came that he might create in himself one people in place of two, so making peace 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body, the church, the body of Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus didn't come to kill anyone's enemies. Jesus didn't come to kill Romans. He came to kill the hostility. One has died, so no one need die, because one has died for all. They came to understand that Jesus was not merely the king of Israel, as the crowd supposed, but he was king of the world. The world. And so what does that mean? It means that all tribes, tongues, and nations must learn to live peaceably with one another. And what does that mean for disciples? It means our focus is not to make war. Our focus is to go and make disciples, apprentices of Jesus in all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded us to do. And where does that start? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching, it begins with learning to love and forgive our enemies, those we would sooner curse and mock and kill. And that brings us to the crowds. Verses 17 and 18. Uh, the disciples were confused. The crowds were something else. Okay? Um, the crowds certainly did not understand. John says explicitly, the reason uh, they were going to Jesus was because of the sign, because of his raising of Lazarus. Right? Here is a man with the power to raise the dead. We need to make Jesus king. By the way, has, has anyone seen this, this hat around anywhere? <laughs> make Jesus king again? Anyone see that? I, I, don't worry, I'll pick on everyone here, okay? Uh, I first saw this uh, friend of mine um, on, on Facebook who was identifying themselves with the hat as a, you know, a proud Christian Trump supporter. And then I had coffee with a, a very progressive Christian friend of mine. And I had like a hunch. Um, and so I, I asked, like, what, what's your reaction to this hat? And he was like, I love that hat. I would totally rock that hat. That's what we need. I was dumbstruck, right? Like, my, like mo, one of my most right-wing Christian friends, most left-wing Christian friends, both think we need to make Jesus king again. Can anyone spot the somewhat problematic assumption in that slogan? He's already king, yeah. Yeah, like somebody dethroned Jesus at some point, and we need Jesus, like, put me up there again, you know? We need to somehow put Jesus back on the throne again. This is why uh, Leslie Newbegin, the missionary, said long ago, before any red hats were being worn, he wrote this, the slogan, make Jesus king, is a blasphemous attempt to co-opt the sovereign power of God for corrupt human ambitions. And irony upon irony, John depicts Jesus' throne as what? It's the cross. So John would look at this hat with a confused, if he could read English, with a confused look on his face and read, crucify Jesus again. <laughs> That's what he would read. Nobody make that hat, okay? It's going to sell to the wrong crowd, all right? So you're, again, remember, political hysteria is about fear. Fear. The crowd fears the Romans, but there's safety in numbers, you know? And with the right powerful leader, we might just overthrow them and take back our nation. And that leads us to the final group, verse 19, the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees are afraid too. Last week, he thread this, chapter 11, verses 47 and 48. The Pharisees gather together with the chief priests. They say, what are we to do? This man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see the fear? You hear the fear in their voices? The crowds want to grab power and restore their nation. The Pharisees want to hold on to their power and preserve the nation. The reaction from the crowd is ignorant and delusional hysteria. The reaction from the Pharisees is exasperation and hard-hearted contempt for the crowds. They're so fixated on their political fears that Messiah in their midst raising the dead and transforming lives, it doesn't even register. So we have the confused disciples, we have the frenzied crowds, we have the exasperated Pharisees. But in the midst of all of them, in the midst of us, is Jesus, seated on a little donkey. Fear not, the Lord your God is in your midst. Fear not, the Lord your God is in your midst, laid in a manger. Fear God, the Lord, fear not, the Lord your God is in your midst, seated on a donkey. Fear not, the Lord your God is in your midst, hanging from a cross. Fear not, the Lord your God is in your midst, humble. It's the quiet message of Palm Sunday that comes to us today in the midst of our hysteria. What might it look like to heed this message? I think for many of us, it might look like getting off our high horses, right? Getting off our high horses of nationalistic zeal or pharisaical contempt for all that. Getting off our high horses and sitting with Jesus. Or sitting with our neighbors and seeking to understand. Remember what Heath said uh, a few weeks ago when Jesus after he fed the crowds and he walked on water, the cure for fear is what? The cure for fear is the presence of God. Attuning to the presence of God in our midst. Jesus quiets the storm. Jesus quiets the crowds. Remember James' words from last year when we studied the book of James. Is there anyone among you wise and understanding? Do any of you disciples understand Show it by your meekness. Show it by your gentleness. Show it by your humility, which most often means show it by not showing it. (laughs) Prove it by not needing to prove yourself. Because unlike the disciples, BCC, we we cannot claim to not understand. We cannot feign ignorance. John also wrote letters And in his first and most famous letter to the church ends this way. 1 John 5, 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that we may know him. That's eternal life for John, right? Knowing him. That we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then he ends with this haunting line, little children, keep yourself from idols. 
That's how he talked to his congregation, little children. Maybe in like 50 years I can talk to you guys that way. <laughs> um, little children, keep yourself from idols. Political hysteria and contempt, as we've learned, are rooted in fear. And fear stems from idolatry. Worshiping something other than God. Fearing anything more than God. It's what keeps you up at night. Fearing losing our way of life. Fearing losing our nation. Fearing losing an election. Whatever it is, personal or political, that keeps you up at night. And don't think about your neighbor right now. Don't think about your wife, your husband. Think about you. Jesus is present. It's you and him right now. So here's the really good news that I've needed to kind of recover for myself, and may, maybe you do too. Jesus didn't come for all the stuff that crowds get excited about and Pharisees worry about. Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you. Nations, empires, they're, they come and go. People are eternal. God wants to know you. Jesus wants to know you. Jesus came for you. Jesus died for you. He rose for you. He sent his spirit for you that you might know him deeply, personally. That you might know his love deep in your heart. In Zephaniah's words, that you might have your fear quieted with his love and that you might hear him singing over you, rejoicing over you and your enemies. His perfect love casts out fear. So may the message of Palm Sunday, the quiet message, Calm Sunday, be ringing in your ears and singing in your heart in the difficult in tumultuous days, months, years to come. Fear not. The Lord your God is in your midst. Humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are here, present in our midst. working through word, sacrament, song, to knit this body together in love until we mature, until we grow up and reach the full stature, the image of Jesus Christ. God, may you increase our hope for that day when we will get to see the redeemed versions of, our, of one another. What a wonderful thing. We don't know what we will be on that day, but we know you. And so we know it will be a glorious thing if we will be like you. God, would you clear away all of the, the mud and the muck that gathers onto our hearts that make us fearful Lord Jesus, there are scary things happening in the world that you call us to pray for, but, but you do not want us infected by fear. You don't want us to be ruled by fear. You gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So God, give us courage 
Grant us a deep knowledge of you. And Father, I pray that there would be people in this room right now who have a sense for maybe the first time that you're coming after them, that you want to know them deeply, that you want them to know you. And I pray they would respond to that invitation to open up their hearts before you and receive your promises of peace and joy. They would receive that promise, God. It's not earned. It's just received as a gift. So let us humble ourselves as our Messiah did and receive your good gifts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.